Well, how's everyone doing this morning? Ooh, that was a start. All right, I like the whistle in there. Here we go. <laughs> well, welcome to Restore Church. We were going to skip past the greetings, but we do see some new faces or faces that have come back. So if you're new to Restore, welcome. I'm Pastor Charles, along with Pastor Mike, Pastor Cleet, and Pastor Nick. We have the privilege of being under shepherds here. And uh, just a quick thing as well, we love to, if you're new, we'd love to get to know you. If you have any questions, please let us know. Uh, we would love to, if you could bring that water bottle up to me as well, that would be great. That'd be awesome. These things never stay on. Thanks so much. These mics never stay on well. But um, we'd love to get to know you and uh, answer any questions about what's preached today as well. And so a few quick announcements before we pray. Um, one, uh, just on top of the women's announcement, we, again, have a new cadence of how we do life here at Restore. So we'll just walk through that very quickly. So on Sundays uh, at 9 a.m., 9 to 9.20, uh, every Sunday, we will have our corporate prayer time. So from what time? 9 to 9.20. And then from 9.30 to 10.30, on the first Sunday of the month, will always be our breakfast time. It'll be time for us to invite others, neighbors, coworkers, uh, family, um, other believers, and it'll be a great time for fellowship and uh, getting to know each other even more. And in the preceding Sundays, from 9.30 to 10.30, we will have our Bible study time for both adults and children from 9.30 to 10.30. So that's part of our cadence. And then, of course, then from there, our regular uh, church service from 11 to 12.30. So again, 9 to 9.20, our corporate prayer time, 9.30 to 10.30, uh, our time of breakfast the first Sunday of the month, and the preceding Sundays will be our Bible study time for both adults and children, okay? And then also on Wednesday, uh, we typically had that for our mid-fellow uh, fellowship, midweek fellowship, say the word. But that's been changed, so then Wednesday, the first Wednesday of the month will be the Women's Ministry Bible Study. The second Wednesday of the month will be the Men's Ministry Bible Study. And then the third Wednesday will be our uh, fasting and prayer time where we will fast throughout the day and then we'll all gather together uh, at 6.30 and then we will be in prayer and then we'll break our fast in the time of meal as well too, okay? So that's part of our cadence. It's also in the emails, the Restore Newsletter. So if you're not receiving them, you can actually just go on the website and just down at the bottom, just put in your email and you'll receive the newsletters. But if not, you can see me afterwards and I'll gladly put that in as well. And last thing, next Sunday, we have our church business meeting for the new year. And we'll have another one on the second Sunday uh, in February as well. So mark your calendars on that and that'll also be uh, in the newsletter. And so, um, and we're starting to just put a cadence of our next several weeks of what's happening so you guys can know and plan for it accordingly. So again, look out for the newsletter, and if you're not on there, please see me so we can make sure you receive it. So let me lead us in prayer, and let's roll from here. Lord, we just thank you that you are a holy, holy, holy God. I can't say that enough. Uh, holy beyond our understanding. Uh, you breathe air into our lungs. Each one of us have come here this morning with different things on our heart. I pray that you would humble our hearts and remove them and clear the path, sort of a parting of the Red Sea in our hearts, so then we could 
fully have attentiveness to your word. Uh, I pray that it will be your word, not mine's, because uh, in this is nothing without you. And so I lift up everyone here that we would seek and hear and be transformed according to your word. Uh, and that from there, we would be bold to go out and tell others what we have discussed and talked about today as well, too. And if someone else here does not know you, Father, I pray that this would be the time that the hearts would be softened enough that the call to repentance and to move into you and have faith and to actually begin a life of eternity onto heaven uh, would begin today. So I lift these things up in your son's matchless name. Amen. All right. So it's good to see you all. And it's great to be here before you as we dive into the book of Matthew. We're continuing our series in the book of Matthew. Uh, and there's an overarching theme uh, in that series, and it's called what? The King. Yes, very good. The King. And in the first few chapters, we were looking at where the King's arrival. And in this chapter three and, and, and the next chapter two, over these next few weeks, we will be looking at the King's inauguration. Okay? And so uh, we'll be going through Matthew. 3, 1 through 12, and there's a few things I want you to keep in mind also. I mean, I titled this, Make Way for the King. Just that simple, Make Way for the King. And there's really three areas uh, that are going to be discussed today. Make way for the king by proclaiming the gospel. Make way for the king by bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. And make way for the king by being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And those are three areas we're going to discuss today in reference to Matthew 3, 1 through 12. So proclaim the gospel, verses 1 through 6, and then the bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, verses 7 through 10, 7 through 10, and verse 12, and baptism by the Holy Spirit, verse 11. Hopefully you guys have that written down. So let me read Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear this threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wow, that is a quite a statement that uh, John the Baptist has made. 
So keep in mind, make way for the king. When you look at this verse, there's one word that stands out. One word that stands out uh, that's repeated a few times. And it's like the crust of his ministry of what he's doing. What is that word? Repent, exactly. What is it to repent? What does that mean? What does repentance mean? A definition might be, it means the act of changing one's mind. But let me ask you, when we repent, is it on our own will? Do we just reach in ourselves and we make a change and everything is good and we lead a great moral life? So there is something else that happens in a repentance, right? And that something is Jesus Christ or his Holy Spirit. So I would look at it this way. When we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus for our first time in life, we're starting our walk with Jesus. Lord, I repent. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. I know I'm an enemy of you, and I want to have eternal life with you starting now. Or whatever words the Lord lays upon your heart. He performs in Ezekiel 36, 25 on you. He says he reaches in your heart and takes a heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh. Now, that flesh means that heart is now starting to beat more for the things of God and less for the things of yourself. And he says, I will put my spirit in you and will cause you to follow my statutes. So the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God now will be in you and will begin and continue and move through you in changing your heart more for God. So when we repent and put our faith in Jesus, that secures our place with God, where now he takes on our sin, Christ took our sin, and we take his righteousness. And that very righteousness that we are covered with from Jesus is being worked into us by the Holy Spirit, one step at a time, changing our heart. So then as we walk with God, there's a continual pattern of repentance as he reveals more in our hearts that is not of him that needs to be removed. And so then he starts, the spirit starts to work and reveal, and we continue repenting now as he reveals more darkness in places of our heart. Does that make sense to you guys with me? To quote, it was brought to me by another brother, and I think it was a great quote, uh, Martin Luther when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Let me ask you, do you ever walk in repentance daily, weekly? Why or why not? I will testify to the fact that I am living proof of such a broken person on a daily basis that I have recognized by his grace, not me, but him in my heart, that as I repent, it surely starts to take eyes off of everyone else and puts eyes on me. And then as I look out at everyone else, it doesn't happen every single moment. This is just a, hey, a work in progress. But when by his grace that happens, then I can look at everyone else with kinder, gentler eyes, desiring for them to have the same light that the Lord has put in me. Does that make sense? So if you're not in a walk of repentance, I would encourage you, start doing it. 
pray to the Lord and say, Lord, reveal to me things that I am just not aware of, that I am blind of, even the thoughts in our head, which stems from our heart, which we'll talk about shortly, are important. Because you can hide things up here and think, hey, I'm a pretty good person. But what's up here comes from here and eventually goes to here. And so that's something we will talk more about. So as part of the make way for the king uh, and paving the way, preparing the way, John is calling people to repentance for the kingdom is near. And, you know, before we dive into these three divisions, we're going to just do a little background just to kind of give you a little <laughs> heads up on that as well. But one of the things that I want to talk about here is that we have a great promise keeper in the Lord, and he is faithful. And we're going to go through that and kind of show that out because Scripture explains that truth. So this was prepared well in advance that John would do the very thing he was called to do. As was foretold back in the Old Testament, fulfilling the prophecies, something we even talked about on Wednesday, which I'll bring up as a, a quick side note. We were talking about, hey, how, why do you believe what you believe? What proof can you, you know, what, what do you hang on to? And it was mentioned that, hey, well over 300 prophecies was really proved out in the life of Jesus. Uh, that alone is huge proof, and there's countless other ways we can go on that as well, too, but that is huge. And this itself of John the Baptist was foretold back in the Old Testament. You can go to places like Isaiah 43, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The Lord is making way for King Jesus to come and save us. Or Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. John the Baptist calling fulfills these verses, showing once again that God is a great promise keeper. Or Romans 1, 2, and I bring this up because he says this of himself, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Or Hebrews 10, 10 23, let us hold fast to the confessions of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And God tells us about himself. In his faithfulness, in crafting this plan of salvation before the foundations of the earth. And this is what it all comes back to, right? When we talk about making a way for the king, John the Baptist is paving a way for the almighty God that will come and take our place so we don't have to suffer and die an eternal hell-bound death if we repent and put our faith in him. Let us see more of how the Lord brings this all together. In the book of Luke, as a reminder, it tells a great background of John the Baptist and his entire family. I mean, we know Zachariah, his father was a priest, his mother Elizabeth was, uh, was a granddaughter pretty much of Aaron, and um, they, it says that they walked blamelessly. I mean, that's an out-of-this-world statement about someone's walk. They walked blamelessly, and they were older in age, and they had prayed for a child, and... Uh, the angel came to them and told them, and he shall go before him in the spirit, excuse me, and the angel came to him and told him that this is what will happen. We have heard your prayer, and you will have a child. And we'll go more into details in a moment. One of the things to point out is just from a historical standpoint, it's been over 400 years, well over 400 years since the prophet Malachi. They've heard nothing from the Lord. And so now he is raising up this John the Baptist now 
to lead the people and point them towards Jesus, pave the way. In Luke 1, 17, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Or as we see in Matthew 3, 5, 6, when he did this, what do we see in 5, 6? Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we see that the Lord designs a plan, keeps his promise, faithful to deliver, softens hearts, and you see the fruit of that in John's ministry. Clearly what the Lord had promised was on display here, bringing a people back to him in repentance to make way for King Jesus. What else do we know about John? John was what is called a Nazarite. The Hebrew word Nazir simply means to be separated or consecrated. You can really find out more about it in Numbers chapter 6, 1 through 21. I won't go into details about it, but there were five key points uh, that I would encourage you to read about. But one of the things is it could be, it was a vow that could be done by his or her, you know, a man or a woman. It was their own individual choice. But what we see in the Old Testament specifically uh, with Samuel and Samson, they were presented to God by their parents, a vow, a Nazarite vow. And with John the Baptist, what it clearly shows is that from birth in the womb, it was a vow, that this is what would happen with him and this is what he would do. So as they were told, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Zechariah, we've heard your prayer, and this is what will happen. So part of that Nazarite vow is he will not touch drink, any strong drink or wine, and a promise again back to the faithfulness of God that the Holy Spirit would be with him. Something we'll talk about a little bit later. The call and then the provision. Even his attire was not by accident. And what I'm pointing out here is that everything on the Lord has a specific intentionality. There's nothing just by accident. Even his attire, his his camel's hair and his leather belt falls right in line with Elijah. You could go back to 2 Kings 1.8, where it says, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So keeping the spirit of Elijah as the Lord has promised, all the way down to his attire. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and that was not by accident. When Israel came out of captivity in Egypt, and started grumbling and sinning in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, what happened? They stayed there for a while, right? They stayed there as a punishment until those generations had died off, and they would not see the promised land. Then eventually, after kings of Israel and Judah failed their people and led them into idolatry and various sins, they were pretty much, they were exiled again and almost wiped off the face of the earth by the Babylonians. Now we're at a place where they're in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, and yet they're still kind of in the wilderness. They're still struggling with sin and rebellion, and John the Baptist's mission is to make way for the king and call them to repentance and remind them that Jesus, he's here, he's coming. 
also a call to just return to God and his ways. Or if you don't know God first time, then repent and recognize his ways. A call to faithfulness has been laid out before us. Make way for the king. Repent. As I mentioned, there's three areas we're going to go into, and we'll start to dive into that now. And that is, again, make way for the king. Proclaim it by proclaiming the gospel. That's verses 1 through 6. Make way for the king by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And make way for the king by being baptized by the Holy Spirit. So let's go and dive in, verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken to the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I've known people who have done that, and that still sounds bad to me. Locusts and honey, I don't know. Locusts in the desert, are pretty big fellows, I don't know. I don't know if enough honey can... Back the taste on that one, but if you're hungry enough, I guess you do it. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John had a calling from the womb, and what do we see him carrying out? What is he doing? Did he go off in a different direction and say, you know what, that sounds good, God, but I'm going to go, I have a different plan, I'm going elsewhere. What do we see him doing? Obedience to the calling. Part of proclaiming the gospel is obedience to the very calling. There's no way to escape it. When we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus and have, a, have the spirit of God in us and have a transformed heart, what he calls us to do, we must do. For if you don't do it, you will quench the very spirit that is in you. We must do it. And when we see the life of John the Baptist, we should be very encouraged by what we see as he calls people to repent. He is being faithful and blameless in the Lord's eyes, obedient to the calling. He's being obedient to the calling. The stage was set forth for John since before the foundations of the earth. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set, apart, set you apart. When we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we go tell others. It is just that simple. We go and we go and we tell others. Let me ask you, if you claim Jesus, why? If you have not done what you've been called to do, what do you think is the culprit of that? What do you think is it? I know for me it's fear will jump in, any excuse. Oh, it was raining, cold day. I was going to say something, but ah, I'll get back to it. Or, man, they just really got under my skin. Ugh, I don't want them to know about Jesus. How about you? And I bring this up because it's a call for us. When we look at the life of John, he was faithful in obedience to the calling. So we see another brother in Christ who's faithful, and that's the same call and walk that we take ourselves. It might not be exactly like him where we're wearing camel's hair in the belt and eating, eating locusts with honey and so on, but yet we are called 
to call others to the same faith. Amen. Let's look at John 4, 39 through 41. Many Samaritans from the town, woman at the well, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. When the Samaritan woman was told the truth about her sins, and that's another thing about calling out of, uh, in the spirit of the Holy Spirit, humility there, but to actually call out someone else's sin because you want them to see this is not of God, as sin has been called out in you, and you continue that walk, is part of that process, and the Lord prepares in advance a heart that will be hardened or a heart that will be softened to hear the truth. And in this case, the Samaritan woman heard the truth. And what did she do? Did she take time and say, okay, now I need to go to school and learn more about this Jesus, and then I'll go tell others. I'm really hungry right now. Whew, I'm safe. Let's eat. Man, I'll get to it next week because i got to go on vacation. No, which I am guilty of, and you all may find yourself in various ways too. She immediately went out of great joy and the spirit working in her heart to go tell others, this man, this Jesus knew everything about me, everything I ever did. He must be the one. And because of that, many others responded. And they came and heard the truth, and then they believed. That is how we are to be used in our obedience to the calling. That is how we are to be used. We, we've been told the truth. We've accepted the truth of the work in our hearts, and now we go tell others. We must amp that up a little bit. I'm guilty of that. We must amp that up more. Or as in Romans 10, 15, he says, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. John must have had some beautiful feet because he was obedient to the calling. I mean, they might not have smelled that great and might have been a little dirty, but spiritually, they were beautiful. So let me ask you, do you have beautiful feet or do you have toe jams? <laughs> do you have beautiful feet in delivering the good news or do you have toe jams, spiritual toe jams? I don't know about you, my toes are manicured, but they're definitely jammed. Very jammed up from a lack of obedience. So I don't say this to convict you, but to encourage you. You know, we take this on, but what are we going to do from here? Beautiful feet to deliver the truth or toe jams that sits back in? I was thinking about the other day, I was like, man, when someone said you have toe jams, I was like, brother, I... I manicured these toes. I shouldn't even say that. It's on too much information. I cut these toes. I, I manicured the toenails. I manicured them. Yeah, but your spiritual feet look really jacked up, brother, because you're about yourself. And I think we all could be guilty of that. God does say in Mark 13, 10, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. So what are we going to do about it? So when we're obedient to the calling, is it just on our own will? is obedience to the calling on our own will. No. Right? It is based on what the Lord provides. That Lord, who is a great promise keeper, who has set a path for us in advance, 
surely also will make provisions for us as well. So when we proclaim the gospel, we're obedient to the calling, utilizing the provisions that the Lord has provided for us. Three different things that we can look at. The work of the Holy Spirit in us, the work of the Holy Spirit that paves the way, softens the heart, gives us the right words. Prayer, praying for opportunities because we're going before God acknowledging and saying, Lord, I'm hungry. I want this opportunity. I want to be used. I want to be obedient to the calling. Show me. Make it clear. Drop a truck on me. Whatever it is in that moment, let me know. And the power of his word, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and the power of God's word are some of the provisions, main provisions we have to be obedient to the calling. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's going to provide. And we should be confident that the very spirit that we can tap into is an all-powerful, almighty spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Man, do I forget that so many times. You forget that you... Why is it that, you know, we see all these miracles being performed and, and people, uh, people being healed, and we see the work of the Spirit so mightily when we look at the Scriptures, and why is it that we don't tend to see it as much around here in the States. I had a, a friend of mine who is from another country. He goes, no, over where I'm at, we see it. I see demonic. It's right in it when they're doing satanic worship and so on, and we see it being cast out, brother. I've seen it. He said, over here, perhaps you guys just have a little bit more trappings that kind of crowds out the reality of what's right before your very eyes. I don't know that to be true, but I, there's something about the fact that we go about our business every single day. We talk about an almighty, all-powerful, encompassing God. And yet, what we see in the very word of God, we can see before our eyes by the work of the Spirit, but yet, some of the things that we've seen and, and healings and, and casting out things, we don't really deal with that as much or talk about that much here. Yet, in other undeveloped places, I, I've heard about it from brothers all the time, but only the Lord knows. But there's something about it, right? The Lord has given us much, and we have many trappings around us. So provisions, provisions, provisions. Again, obedience to the calling is by taking advantage of the provisions we have, the Holy Spirit, prayer, the power of his mighty word is what we will use. How do we know? How do we know? How do we know that what God promises us is going to come to fruition? That's not a trick question. I know we just discussed it. How do we know that what God has promised us is going to come to fruition? It's the old song, right? This I know because the Bible tells me so. <laughs> but it's true, and I can't emphasize that enough. We have so much that has happened before us, so much to hang on to in proof of this great promise keeper 
and we look at the ministry of John the Baptist as saying, repent, make way for the king. He's obedient to the calling, using the provisions, the Holy Spirit that's mighty in him, and we are called to the same thing. So in bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, let's go to 7, verses 7 through 10. Make way for the king by proclaiming the gospel. Make way for the king by bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. The second division, verses 7 through 10. John the Baptist condemned the Pharisees and said, Jesus, a brood of vipers, a brood of vipers. That's pretty harsh words. Pretty harsh words. I know sometimes I hear from people that, uh, and it's good to have a heart that we want humility and we fancy ourselves to be most compassionate. When we look at the disciples and, and Christ before us, they were very compassionate and, and most humble, uh, and yet they called out hard things when they needed to. And we're called to live a life where we are filled with the Spirit and we do what Jesus did in his ministry, or what the disciples did before us. And so we see here something being called out. Brood of vipers. Brood of vipers is a family of snakes. That's pretty harsh. You ever call someone a brood of, you brood of vipers. That's pretty harsh. As one commentator put it, because vipers are venomous, John was essentially calling the religious leaders deadly sons of serpents. It's quite a bold denunciation and one that Jesus repeated to the Pharisees in the book of Matthew, Matthew 12. The Pharisees and Sadducees were religious sects with Judaism, within Judaism. They were leaders of that time. The Pharisees were the law keepers and promoters of tradition, and Sadducees comprised the wealthier ruling class. And actually, if we go to 8, Acts 23, 8, it explains more about them. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So they didn't believe in any of those things, resurrection, spirit, angels. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. But here's the problem. Both sides were doing the exact same thing. They were taking authority for themselves and not on the God. So they had become corrupt, legalistic, hypocritical, and would eventually be responsible for crucifying the Son of God. They earned their label, brood of vipers. Jesus says in 844, the unbelieving Jews belong to their father, the devil. That is an awesome exchange you see in the book of John. We're like, we have Abraham. He goes, oh, no. If you, were, if you were children of Abraham, you'd know who I am, and you'd do what Abraham did. Instead, your father is the devil. Talk about, that's another hard statement. You ever say to someone, man, brother, I love you, but we're in the same place. Your father's the devil right now. You need to repent. You ever say something like that? Seems pretty harsh. But when necessary, it is necessary. They claimed to have repented of their sins, but their lives and actions told a different story. They continued to live in sin, refused to see their own guilt. They were hypocrites, calling people out for sins that they themselves had not taken to the cross. You can call someone else a sin out, but it's very important that you're moving the plank from your own eyes and you're walking it out with the Lord as well too, amen? They were not bearing fruits worthy of repentance. So take this to heart. True repentance results in evidence of a changed heart and a transformed life. That's what true repentance does. It's not I repent and then I continue with my same story. It's I repent and I see King Jesus in increasing fashion 
and now my heart beats more for the things of him. Not perfectly, but in increasing fashion. True repentance results in evidence of a changed heart and a transformed life. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. Or Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's other fruits also, like sharing the gospel and making disciples out of the book of James and the book of Matthew. Living a humble life of sacrifice and service, Romans 12. Growing in faith, we're called to confirm our election, 2 Peter 1, 3-8. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, 1 John 3, 14 and 4-7 and John 13, 35. And setting a godly example, which we see in 1 Timothy 4, 12 and Titus 2, 2-3. So there's the fruit of the Spirit, but then there's also the other fruits just discussed. Does that mean that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, that automatically at that point that everything is good and we're going to exhibit all those things? There might be people that look like they don't exhibit anything, but they have just a little bit of a mustard seed of faith. And they actually, by the grace of God, are moving towards him in increased fashion. And so it is for us. We don't want to be discouraged, but encouraged that in making way for the king, we proclaim the gospel and we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Also, bearing fruit is not presumptuous. This is something he called out in verse 9. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's basically saying, Listen, if Abraham really needs children, God can raise up children out of these stones. It's not about you guys. It's not about your, your relation to Abraham. But it is about you in the spirit of faith as Abraham. I've known people, and I won't mention the specific sex, but I've, I've seen it where you ask them about, do they know Jesus? And the first thing they do is they pull out their cross and go, we're Christians. And they will mention their culture immediately. We're Christian. And I saw it happen so many times, I said, Man, there is something to this. They really believe they're passing on in their culture that because their culture is whatever they believe it is, they believe that they're all, as soon as they're born, that they are Christian. It was scary, but it's true. And I have friends that to this day, they still believe that, hey, I'm part of this, we're Christian. It is not because of that. It is not because of your bloodline. It is not because your family went to church. It is not because... Uh, they baptized you when you were uh, a kid. It is not because they told you you were a nice person. It is not because of your moralistic ways. It is not because of anything else but the work of the Spirit in you. And as John the Baptist called, repent, repent, repent. You repent and put your faith in Jesus. And that's how you're grafted in as a child of God. John 8, 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Christ responds to this. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. And that's when they went on to say again, Abraham is our father. He said, no. 
He's not. Don't presume on anything but what the scriptures tell you. That is an encouragement I want to make to you, family, and to myself. Don't presume on anything but what the scriptures say. That is of utmost importance. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. That is the only way we're grafted in. And we're called to confirm our election in 2 Peter 1.10. We confirm our election. That means that what we claim to have and the work that's happening in our hearts, we actually start to live that out with the things we talked about in the fruit of the Spirit. Let me ask you this, and I know I've repeated this again. What is the fruit in your life? Someone, you say you have Jesus. What is that fruit? Are you feel a pull more towards the Word of God? Do you feel guilty more of the things that you used to do that you're still doing, and you're thinking, man, this isn't right? Do you feel a sense of a desire to be closer to God? Do you desire greater fellowship with other brothers and sisters who claim the same name of Jesus? What is the fruit? Do you desire when you see someone else who doesn't know God that you want them to know God as you do? What is that fruit? And then he talks about, in verse 10 and 12, the result of not bearing fruit. This is huge. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He uses axe as a, as a form of like total destruction, like taking it to the root. In the scriptures, you look through like Jeremiah 46 and Ezekiel 3 uh, and Ezekiel 31, you'll see where forests and trees were used at times to represent the kingdoms and nations and individuals that they were calling out in destruction, saying, you will be destroyed and you will be chopped down or doomed to be cut down. John is letting them know that if they don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, then there is an impending judgment, the acts of God that will cut down, cut them down at the root. And he makes it even more clear. Every tree before, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And that is hell. I tell you, as I was preparing for this, I was reading something. I can't remember the dude's name. I think it's Jeremy Myers or Myers or something to do, something like that. But I literally came across and the guy just said, hey, listen, you don't have to repent to be with God. All you have to do is, all you really have to do is, is, is just have faith in God. But if, when they're talking about repentance, they're not talking about actual hell. They're not talking about that fire is more, it's more temporal. They're not talking about that. As I was reading, I said, oh, my goodness, this guy is literally unraveling the gospel right before our very eyes. So what happens when Jesus says repent, when John says repent? He says, oh, no, no, that's not it. All you need to do is have faith. And when he's talking about repentance and he's talking about judgment, that's more of a temporal thing. And uh, so I say that because it goes back to the very word of God. What John was doing, making the way, preparing for the king, repent is necessary. We repent. We repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. Let's read verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So let's talk about this very quickly. I'm down to my last page. Here's how the process of harvesting grain worked in Jesus' day. So when the grain was ripe, the stalks were put on a floor. It's like a threshing floor, okay? And they would strip what the hull, or the shell, also called the shaft, off of that grain. So it was all sitting there. 
but it was all mixed in. So you had, you know, you had the, the plant and you had the grain in it. They stripped off the hull or the shaft. It's all there. So how do you get through all of it? So they would go through a sort of a, thresh, a winnowing process. They would have what is called a winnowing fork, which will actually be up in just a moment. And they take that winnowing fork and they would lift it up in the air and then the wind would separate. So the grain was heavier, it would fall to the ground. They take that grain and they store it and use it for food. But the shell or the shaft was lighter and useless and it would, the wind would blow it to the left and it would burn it up and it would be as if it did not even ever exist. And it should pop up in a moment, but you'll see it soon enough. But the whole purpose of this is that the wheat itself is like our hearts, is those who actually bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the shaft, that shell, that shell that's burned up to the side is like those who don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Jesus' winnowing fork with which is separated the wheat from the shaft this is authoritative words and the demonstrations of his power through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is that wind that blows that shaft to the side and the grain that stays there. So let me ask you, as I say this, are you wheat or shaft? Are you wheat or shaft? And I mention that because everything that we talked about up to this point in John the Baptist, that's what it comes down to. Is it possible for wheat to exhibit some shaft? Sure, because we're works in progress, right? What we talked about, that wheat will exhibit that. But overarching, that wheat is doing what? It's being used for good. It's being used for good, and that shaft is burning up altogether. Make way for the king. And let's finish with verse 11. You guys with me? All right, excellent. Verse 11. I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So let's talk about this, baptism. What is the purpose of baptism? What is the purpose and why did Jesus get baptized? So baptism is an outwardly sign of what the Holy Spirit is doing on the inside. So if you look at what John the Baptist was doing, he, many were coming to him, and they were being called to repentance, and they were confessing their sins, and then he was out in the river, dunked them fully in water, and came back up. And that immersion into the water is like symbolic of our sins are being washed away being put on the cross on Jesus' back. And as Jesus died and his body was buried, those sins were destroyed with him. And then as he took up his life again with a new resurrected body, those sins are no more. So when we go into that water, we pull back up, it's like sins are being washed away and we come back up a new creation by work of the Holy Spirit. So it's symbolizing exactly on the outside what's exactly happening on the inside, work by the Holy Spirit. So the next question becomes, why did Jesus get baptized? Because people were confessing their sins. Did Jesus need to confess sins? Surely not. But we point back to we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in all ways. And one of the ways 
one of the things about Jesus' physical ministry is he showed us what it was like to, one, he came and took on this flesh, dealt with the same sins we dealt with, except he was not tempted by it, focused on the Father and obedience to the calling all the way through. And part of that walk of call to, to baptism, he went and was baptized. This is what will happen in you through me. So we're called to baptism. Jesus lived out the baptism. And then the dove, the Holy Spirit, which is the craziest thing, the Spirit of God descending upon God. Only God knows how, but it's incredible. Showing us exactly what would happen to us. The Spirit of God descending upon us and now empowering our ministry. And then at that point, what did God do? He announced to the world, this is my son who I am pleased with. That was tremendous proof right there from God himself. This is my son. But he was baptized because, again, we have the work, showing the work of the Spirit coming down even upon his physical body. He's still God, still all-powerful. But in every way, we have a high priest that walks through everything that we will go through all the way to our sins being on Jesus on the cross. Does that make sense? Jesus' purpose in being the Savior of the world is his own faithful obedience to the Father. He was obedient even to the point of death on the cross, of Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, thereby securing our salvation. He himself showed this is what it's like in this physical body, empowered by Spirit, being God, to live this out. And now you too, as you repent of your sins and put your faith in me and the work on the cross, you will have the same spirit that descended upon me will descend upon you to carry out the very things that I have done. Worthiness is only through Jesus too. If you notice one of the things that John the Baptist does, he says, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That's very, very simple. One of the things that we need to remember, and I'm guilty of it too, it's all about Jesus, not about ourselves. You know, when my wife was, had graduated, um, had finished a degree up, one of the things they said initially, they said, listen, you guys are getting all, you guys have gotten all this great training, but remember, and many people will come to you, but remember, it's not about you. You've been given additional training so you can take deeper dive to point people to Jesus. So he basically is warning them, don't you dare Take this on to you and be like your own God. But it's about Jesus. And in that same fashion, this is what John the Baptist is doing. He say, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. That's like saying in, in terms of sports, I'm not worthy to be on the JV, the varsity, the freshman squad, the water boy, carry his jersey, comb his hair, his helmet. I'm not worthy. But he is the one. And what he was doing, you will see with the disciples also, the rest of the disciples, they pointed everything back to Jesus. They took no credit for themselves. It is not me, but the Christ that's in me. Again, he is showing an example of, in the obedience to the calling, proclaiming the gospel, and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what it looks like. It is not us. It is Jesus. And our worthiness is only through Jesus. So in the last piece, he says, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and the fire. So, as we talked about, 
there's the outwardly actions of being baptized and immersed in the water, and which is symbolic of exactly the work of the Spirit on the inside. When we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, have the Holy Spirit inside of us, have a change of heart, there's fruit of it that comes out that we went over before, so I'm going to go back to it, but like, again, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, there is a working to show that when we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and we're on to God, we don't look the same. We might look the same physically, but in our actions and in our thoughts and our hearts, it changes. The heart changes that impacts what happens in the head that impacts what happens in the hands. Heart Head, hands, in that flow. If you have sin here, then also it affects what you think about up here and then impacts what comes out in your actions. And so the work of the Spirit, of Jesus baptizing the Holy Spirit, produces those fruits. Then it also says baptizing of the fire. And there's some differences, uh, variances in, in thought process of the baptizing of the fire. Um, some would say uh, it's like the tongues of fire in Pentecost where he's referring to, you know, when you receive the Holy Spirit, then you'll have the tongue of fire on you, um, like we, as we described at, at Pentecost. Others say it was about the lake of fire. You're either baptized by the Holy Spirit or you're baptized by fire, which is those who are, have rejected God, their sanctification is immersed in the lake of fire. It means you're going to hell. And that's where your baptism will occur so to speak. And others say it's about their walk of sanctification. It means that I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit, and then from that point on, there's a sort of a winnowing in our, in our lives that, that performing a work on us where we're growing and sin is being removed consistently in our walk of repentance. And I tend to lean more towards that, but either way, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to the fact that when we're baptized, by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will shine in our thoughts and actions in our heart. That's what it comes down to. Make way for the king by proclaiming the gospel, by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and by being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this time to walk through Matthew's Three, one through 12, and I pray that, that my chicken scratch uh, by your will impacts my heart and hearts here and that we would meditate on that. Uh, we would see the life of John the Baptist and, and see his obedience and see the provisions you have, uh, see him proclaiming the gospel, see him bearing fruit, the call to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, uh, see the, what he calls in baptism by the Holy Spirit through your son Jesus. I pray that we would meditate on these things and that it would grow us. Lift these things up in your matchless name. Amen.